The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Please turn your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. My children love balloons, but they don't last very long in our house. Now, if each child has his or her own balloon, they might last a little longer, but as soon as one pops, mysteriously the others begin to quickly pop as some children begin to vie to compete, control, and to attack one another's balloons. In our passage, Paul addresses the problem of the human ego, our pride, and compares it to something like a balloon, like a balloon. The human ego is empty, fragile, and easily damaged. Paul invites us to adopt a better way to put off our human pride, our put away our false identities, and to take up the call of the gospel as servants of the cross of Christ. I read from 1 Corinthians 4, verses, my main text is 1 through 7, and I read verses 8 to 9 to help close a point and to preview what Pastor Walker will get into here in a few weeks. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one, against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we became a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. This is God's word. Let us pray. For gracious God and Father, we do exalt you as the one true judge of all the earth. 
and you have judged guilty our human pride and yet have provided for us in Christ a Savior to rescue us from ourselves and our false judgments. And I pray, O Lord, that you would use this passage to open our eyes, to give us better insight not only into ourselves but into the grace of the gospel that you have revealed through your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Studies in recent decades have demonstrated that some of the people in our society who have the highest self-esteems are prison inmates. In fact, Professor Roy F. Baumeister from Florida State University concluded that the most violent of offenders are those that are highly narcissistic and have a great perceived self-esteem. He writes, high self-esteem people tend to have little self-control when things are not going their way. Abusers generally have high self-esteem. They appear to have no respect for anyone else. Now, now many professionals who are concerned about many of our society's ills conclude that bad behavior must result from low self-esteem. But In her New York Times Magazine article from 1992 entitled The Trouble with Self-Esteem, psychologist Lauren Slater concludes that there is no evidence in our society of low self-esteem. And she references three studies while drawing her conclusion that people with high self-esteem pose a greater threat to those around them than people with low self-esteem. Feeling bad about yourself is not the source of our country's most expensive social problems. My goal tonight is not to give an academic paper on self-esteem, but to allow God's Word to scrutinize our obsession with ourselves, our preoccupation with self causes all kinds of problems and not just the kind that lead one into prison. Our preoccupation with self damages relationships with God, with family, and even within the church. Now, one of the underlying issues of the self is is how we view judgment. The judgment of others, the judgment of ourselves, and ultimately the judgment of God. The gospel sets us free from the tyranny of self from the judgment of other people, our own self-critical judgments, and teaches us to rest alone in the just and gracious judgment of God. Now, as, as a result of the fall, you and I are all too consumed with ourselves rather than consumed with Christ. But as servants of the cross, we become better stewards of God's grace Learn to make self-assessments through the mirror of God's Word and grow in selfless service in the likeness of Christ. Now, the problem with the human ego is that it wants to be master. But recall Jesus saying to his disciples that the one among you who wants to be greatest must be your servant. And he who would be first must be slave of all. And it's in this spirit that Paul is responding to the criticisms of the Corinthian people who are attacking him because he doesn't fit their expectations. Paul 
instructs them here in verse 1 to regard himself and the other apostles as servants of Christ. Now, a servant in that day and age was not exactly the same thing as a slave. Servants had more freedoms, more rights, more privileges. And yet, it was still a lowly task, a lowly position, a mere messenger. And this was a, a hard label, a hard concept for the Corinthian peoples to accept. They wanted to push Paul and the apostles to a higher plane, to a higher role, a status to enjoy rights and privileges. And Paul refuses. He would not be molded by the Corinthians' worldly view of what it means to be a believer, and, and even more so, an apostle of Christ. But Paul says that the church is to regard them also as stewards. Now, where a, a servant might have responsibilities for running errands or being a courier to bear messages, a steward managed property. A, a steward was a kind of servant who might manage a household, might oversee the work of other servants, and even handle the master's investments. We can't find all kinds of stewards in the Bible. In fact, Paul refers to the kind in Galatians 4, the kind of steward that would oversee the heir, the, the children's education and their school lessons, even discipline them for lack of diligence. Joseph, in the Old Testament, was a steward in the house of Potiphar. In fact, so trusted that he oversaw and managed all the household affairs of Potiphar. Paul writes to Titus in chapter 1, an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy from gain, for gain. Peter says likewise in his first letter, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Paul says that every steward is required to be found faithful. And when the master comes home, he can reward and commend his steward. You and I have stewards. Your doctor is a steward of your health. Your accountant is a steward of your tax filing. You've got stewards who help manage your property and your uh, resources, your retirement planning. Most parents at one time or another have entrusted their children in the hands of a babysitter who was a steward for a time temporarily for the care and welfare of the children. And how mortified the parents are to come home finding a babysitter absent or irresponsible or engaging in something uh, irresponsible or immoral. Paul says that the stewards, as stewards of Christ, are called to make known the mysteries of God. Basically, to reveal the message of salvation in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this stewardship call was not just given to the apostles. Rather, it is applied to the pastors and to the elders and the lay leaders in the local church today. And it's to the ordained leadership that has been entrusted the faithful preaching and teaching of God's word. The administration of the sacraments, leading God's people in worship, providing biblical counsel, making disciples, and even exercising discipline of church members. The ordained leadership are not masters. We are stewards, mere humble servants. And each of us must have our ego checked 
at the cross of Christ and allow our character to be evaluated according to God's word. But the label, the status of a servant and steward, is not limited to the leadership, the ordained leadership of the local church. It applies to every single one of us in here. Every single one of us that call upon the name of Christ, who profess him as Lord, you are a steward, a steward of the grace that God has given you, the knowledge of his salvation through Jesus Christ. You, too must have your ego checked at the foot of the cross of Christ. To submit to God's word, to learn to endure hardship with patience, trials with faith, to learn to faithfully steward the privileges and opportunities you have to influence people around you, to testify to the marvelous riches of God's Grace. It is a precious and valuable thing to be a steward of God's rich grace. And the word of God assures us that the Lord will reward handsomely those he finds faithful at his return. Now Paul goes on in verse 3 and following, having established this status of servant and stewardship, to move towards this idea of assessment, of evaluation. He mentions these words of judgment. And his, his main point is that we have one ultimate master who will judge and evaluate us. And yet, we find ourselves subject to, in, in our own weakness, we are subject to the judgments of others and even our own self-critical judgment. He writes, but with me, there's a very small thing that I should be judged by you, or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I have a friend who got involved in a car accident and was being sued for in excess of $100,000, money that he did not have. And in all appearances, the claims of this one bringing suit, the claims appeared unwarranted, unfounded, and yet the court ruled in favor of the plaintiff. To be called into court to appear before the judge is a dreadful thing that causes most of us to fear and quake. And likewise, to be judged and be scrutinized by our peers, our family members, and friends also is something dreadful. Most of us respond with defensiveness when we are wrongly judged. Counselor Ed Welch put it well in the title of a book years ago, When People Are Big and God is Small. Many of us suffer from the fear of man. Many of us suffer from magnifying the influence and threat of people and minimizing the power and deliverance of God. Paul, in this passage, helps us to reverse that tendency of our flesh— to make God much bigger and people much smaller. Paul says, I consider it a small thing to be judged and criticized by you. Now, in saying this, Paul is not saying, well, I just couldn't care less what you think about me in some sort of cool and detached manner. What he is saying is that God's judgment of him is what ultimately 
matters. He's basically saying, what God thinks of me is infinitely more important than what any of you think of me. Paul does care about these people. He does care about what they think. He does want relationship with them. And yet his desire to please God trumps his desire to serve and please these people. And if pleasing them runs counter to him serving and obeying God, he will not please them. And he will suffer the consequences for it. Anybody who pressures him away from his faithfulness to the gospel message must be denied and ignored. You and I have people in our lives who criticize us, who judge us for our Christian convictions. We will have those who speak ill of us or challenge us or question us or mock us. If you have to refuse attending a wedding of a family member due to some moral objection, you very well might face consternation from extended family members. Some of us may have to stand before courts in our day, like some small businesses who have taken a stance for Christ, standing against the growing, prevailing headwinds of change in what is socially and morally acceptable. That is the culture in which we live. And we must learn to endure the judgments and criticisms of others by putting it in perspective compared to the judgment and will of God. Now, Paul had a strong personality. Paul was a man of convictions. Paul had this amazingly big view of God. He, was, he seemed to be fearless before his opponents. He was a rock against the criticisms and judgments of others. And so we say, well, you know, I'm not like the Apostle Paul. But notice what else he says in this passage. He says, he claims to not even judge himself. Really. That seems to be a tall claim. That that claim to me is, is up there with the passage from Philippians 4 where Paul says that he has learned to be content in all circumstances. The apostle suffered some miserable circumstances. He was imprisoned several times. He faced shipwreck. He was beaten by mobs and left for dead. He was even abandoned by some of his own followers. But here he says he does not even judge himself. Is Paul arrogant? Is he self-consumed? Is he one of those people who just never apologize? Is he just really thick-skinned? who assumes he's always right and everybody else is always wrong. Well, I would contend that, according to the data of the New Testament, Paul was a very tender, conscientious, and sensitive man. He was conscious of his sins, and he confesses his sins rather uh, revealingly in the New Testament. In fact, he refers to himself in his letter to Timothy as the chief of sinners. He not was the chief of sinners. I am the chief of sinners. But in Paul's introspection, 
he recognizes that his own self-judgments are flawed. They are tainted by sin. He does not even trust his own judgments of himself. It would subject himself fully to the judgment of God. I, like many of you, have the weakness of hyper-self-criticism. I imagine many of us in here are sensitive, sometimes too sensitive. A lot of us hold ourselves to impossibly high standards. I can chastise myself ruthlessly for mistakes and failures, even things that are just not even of any real consequence. As I reflect upon this, I realize that some of this is a matter of my flesh, my temperament, my own sin patterns, and my own failure to appropriate the grace of God. So when Paul says he does not even judge himself, there's a cynical side of me that says, yeah, right. Who does that or who does not do that? But I feel like I'm becoming more on Paul's side, recognizing that as we grow in the grace of God, as we learn to trust in Christ as Savior, we learn to hand over and yield to him all judgments, letting him be the evaluator, letting him be the judge. You see, we assess ourselves all the time. I'm, I'm convinced that we're all guilty of building our resumes constantly. That that does not end once we got a new job. We're always building a resume trying to be good enough, trying to sell ourselves, trying to be, to measure up. It's like we're on trial every day. We're, we're making a case for ourselves so that we can be found acceptable, so that we can find ourselves found worthy and acceptable in the sight of others. But we need to recognize that there is a deep and dreadful flaw in the way we try to perform and self-evaluate, the way we try to put ourselves on trial. You know, for those of us who find ourselves constantly performing, building up a resume and making our case for ourselves, those of us who are shackled by issues of sin and guilt, we need to let the gospel to reorient our thinking, to transform our sense of self, our personhood, to evaluate ourselves, or rather to not evaluate ourselves at the foot of the cross. You know, a, few, a couple years ago, our church staff began to do a, a, a staff evaluation process by which each staff would evaluate him or herself and supervisor would evaluate them. And it's something that most companies, most businesses, and nonprofits do for improvement and correction. And we found that most people evaluate themselves rather harshly and are too hard on themselves. And uh, I, I remind us here that we need to be careful with how we evaluate ourselves. Are you yielding to God to let him be your evaluator? Will you trust in his judgments because in God's judgment, you are righteous through the blood of Christ. You are precious in his sight. Your sins are covered. You are well-loved and a person of tremendous worth in the sight of God 
because he made you and he sent his son to die for you. And that is the stamp of approval that you and I need every single day as we face judgments, mistakes, we criticize ourselves, learning to rest in God's stamp of approval. You know, I think many of us go through this, this seesaw tendency. We, in our flesh, we, we tend to evaluate ourselves. If, if I had a good day and I avoided temptation and sin, I feel good about myself. I give myself an attaboy. I pat myself on the back. But on the days when I stumble and fall and, and cave into a, a dogged sin, I beat myself up. I chastise myself. I'm worthless. Both are wrong. We know the gospel teaches us that anything good in us, anything good in our lives, as we resist temptation, as we grow in faith, give praise to God. Glorify him. Rest and enjoy. Wow, thank you, Lord, for giving me grace to resist that temptation. In that same vein, when we stumble and fall, it is not pleasing to God to grovel, to self-chastise. That is a form of penance. That is a mechanism of self-will. Some call that, that that's just exercising your own self-salvation project rather than resting in the perfect work of Christ, his blood shed for you. So we need to learn to yield that self-evaluation process to God's evaluation. Now Paul, in verse 4, makes this astonishing statement. He says, For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. He basically is saying that his conscience is clear. Paul keeps clean accounts. Now, Paul is not saying that he has not done anything wrong, that he's righteous and perfect in and of himself. What he is saying is that where he has erred, where he has erred and committed sin, he has confessed and repented, and he refuses to entertain false accusations against himself. He will not be intimidated by the agendas of others. He is also saying that he does not have an obligation to measure up to other people's expectations as though they were his master. He has one master. He will not subject himself to unreasonable expectations that are not fitting with his gospel call. Paul has boundaries, we might say. He aims to be a God-pleaser. And if he fails to meet other people's expectations— they're not fitting with the call of God's gospel in his life, then the failure is the problem of other people. Many of us struggle with that because we're pleasers. But by God's grace, we learn to become pleasers of God, seeking to fulfill his expectations. But in verse 5, Paul has a final word regarding judgment. He's really warning and challenging this Corinthian church who is filled with judgment, filled with comparison, filled with boasting, to warn them against premature judgments, declaring that God is the one who will bring all things into the light and will even disclose the purposes and the secret intents of people's hearts. You know, you and we're frustrated by another government inquiry that will not really get to the bottom of a scandal. We're frustrated when a case in the courts just goes unresolved because they can't bring indictment against a wrongdoer. Justice is imperfect in this world. And yet, God is bringing judgment that will be perfect. 
and he will expose and disclose all things. And even as you and I find ourselves on trial every day with other people's expectations, with our own impossibly high standards, we need to remember that the trial for us is over. Jesus Christ went to the trial for us. The judgment was declared 2,000 years ago as Christ went to the cross on my behalf and yours. He took the punishment that we fully deserved. And when he rose from the dead, God declared, it is finished. It is done. You and I are no longer on trial. Yes, the judgment will come, and we will enter into God's presence. All that is not of, of Christ will be washed away, and we will stand in blamelessness, in holiness, in glory, in joy, in sinlessness forever and ever and ever. And so we have to look back to the cross and look ahead to glory to remind ourselves we're not on trial anymore. I can stand in God's presence. I can, I can walk with him by faith and grow more and more in his likeness because there now is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what do we do with this? How, how do we take this as, as, as we respond to the call, I believe, of selflessness as we grow and follow in the likeness of Christ, as we embrace our identity as God's servants and stewards, as we resign to God's judgment alone? Well, Paul says in verse 6, he applies all these things to himself and to Apollos for the church's sake. He reminds them to submit to God's word, to put off the judging and the comparing, and then he uses a term that's very revealing. He calls these people puffed up with an inflated view of themselves, making themselves judges of the apostles. And that word for puff, puffed up, it, it refers to a bellows that one would use to blow air into a furnace to pump air and get it aflame. Where does our tendency to puff ourselves up come from? Well, it comes from our brokenness our weakness, our insecurity, our constant need to tout ourselves, to blow our own horns, to boast in ourselves, to align ourselves with, uh, with others who make us look and feel good about ourselves. The human ego is like a swollen internal organ ready to burst, releasing dangerous toxins threatening the body. The ego is like a balloon ready to burst or like a pinprick letting air out as it begins to zoom around the room. Pastor and author Tim Keller refers to the ego that's puffed up. He calls it empty. The human heart is constantly seeking an identity in something other than God himself. We want our worth and our purpose in something other than God. We live in this illusion that we are self competent. Also, an overinflated ego is painful. People say that, oh, my feelings got hurt. Your feelings didn't get hurt. Your pride got hurt. Your ego got hurt. Your, your sense of self-worth was attacked. When we feel ignored or snubbed, when we feel stupid, we really have an ego problem. 
you know, our, in our, self, our self-centeredness is constantly drawing attention to itself, trying to fill up our emptiness, try, busy trying to compare ourselves with others. So Paul goes on in verse 7 to address the problem of boasting in this Corinthian church. And he challenges them on their pretense, pre- pretending to have all these great things, all this giftedness, all these material and spiritual resources, as though it was something not given to them. Rather than humbly and gratefully accepting that every good and perfect thing comes from the hand of God. C.S. Lewis writes in his famous work, Mere Christianity, on the chapter of pride, he says, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there'd be nothing to be proud about. Pride is the pleasure of having more than the next person. So what is happiness? What is true contentment? as it applies to things like competition, a baseball game, where you can genuinely cheer on your child's opponents, praise them for a great play, rather than be consumed with your own child's performance, your own team's performance. Apply that to the successes and joys and blessings of other people. Can you genuinely rejoice in God's blessings in other people's lives? We all have issues of pride, of comparison, of comparing and measuring what do I have, what do they have. It's been noted by many megastars, athletes, entertainers, many of whom are driven by the fear of being mediocre. Madonna and other superstars have admitted in interviews that they are driven to prove that they are a somebody and not a nobody. Friend, the gospel sets you free from that false identity, from that false drive to prove yourself, to be a somebody, to be something more than mediocre, because in Christ Jesus, you are somebody. You are somebody of tremendous worth that God has set his affections upon you and wants to set you free. Set you free from vainglory. Set you free from self-centeredness. Set you free from being consumed with self. Set you free from ego inflation to be somebody consumed with the glory of God and an unhindered desire to serve and bless other people. So what is the solution? The solution to the ego, the problem of being self-consumed, well, in verses 8 and following that Pastor Walker will get into in a few weeks, there's all this series of contrasts of worldly versus godly, of the flesh versus the spirit, of being self-consumed versus selflessness. And in verse 8, he describes how the Corinthians have been blessed, and he beckons them to rejoice and not to not make much of themselves, but to make much of God who has blessed them and has equipped them to reach the whole region with the gospel because of their giftedness. But then Paul compares himself and the apostles to gladiators, to those men sentenced to die in the arena, condemned to death. 
to remind us that in Christ you are dead. You are dead to the old man. You are dead to the pride. You are dead to the ego. Your life is forfeit, and you're set free. You are set free to fight to the finish. You and I are called into the arena to fight, and the enemy is sin. In the ego, our pride must be killed. We, we are a spectacle on display, but it's not for the praise of man, but before an audience of one, the commendation of God. The deepest desire in our hearts is to receive our approval, our assessment from God. That the same God who said to his only son, you are my son with whom I am well pleased, That is what we all long to hear, and that's what we all need to strive for. But in doing so, our little ego balloons that are empty in our flesh need to be filled with something else. The Bible calls humility. Now, humility is oftentimes misunderstood. Humility is thought of as, well, just thinking less of yourself. Humility is not thinking more of yourself or less of yourself is really thinking of yourself less, if at all. And the truly humble person is not someone talking themselves down. Rather, the truly humble person is the one whose chief desire is to honor and glorify God and is genuinely interested in you, loving and serving of being of service to you. You know, many of us are embarrassed by our forgetfulness, We forget people's names. We forget where we put the car keys. We forget what we had for lunch earlier. And, you know, even worse is the problem of amnesia, dementia, other problems of the brain where forgetfulness becomes a chronic issue. But I think there is something blessed in the gospel that I call self-forgetfulness. As we become more and more consumed with the glory of God, more and more earnest in making the gospel real in our lives, we are less consumed with ourselves. We might, des- we might call it the desire for, for heart amnesia, in which our, our hearts are so filled with the glory and love of God and the joy of serving other people that drives our consuming obsession with ourselves further and further away. How do you know? How do you know if you are growing in genuine humility? Well, one test is how you respond to criticism. If someone criticizes you and it's devastating, whether they're right or wrong, it could be a sign that you're still too consumed with self. Whereas a desire to genuinely consider the criticisms of, of others, and if it's accurate, learn from it and grow. And if it's wrong, politely and graciously dismiss it as, I'm sorry, but I don't think that's accurate. That is one test. But another test is just a genuine desire in the gospel to grow. You see, because the gospel makes us want to grow and to change, to tear up our resumes, to stop trying to make our case day after day, to let the trial and leave it at the place of the cross that we might grow and enjoy the thing, enjoying the things, enjoying people for what and for who they are, not mere resume builders. 
you know, in recent decades, our American economy has seen a, a string of financial bubbles. You recall in the year 2000 or so, there was the tech bubble. And then in 2008, there was the housing bubble that led to the Great Recession. And now some economists are concerned about the rising student loan debt bubble and perhaps other bubbles that are right around the corner. And if you know anything about economics and about the free enterprise economy, that the markets have a tendency to correct themselves by bursting those bubbles. You and I need our bubbles bursted. We need correction. We need to be brought down from having too high a view of ourselves or perhaps too low a view of ourselves. We must learn to let the Spirit guide us, to correct us, to mold us, so we are less and less consumed with ourselves, less and less inclined to compare ourselves to other people, less and less concerned with what other people think about us, not thinking too highly, not thinking too lowly, putting off unhealthy judgments and criticisms of ourselves. It's Christ. It's Christ who fills us, who fills our sense of worth, who gives us meaning and purpose and direction. It's His Spirit that does correct us and change us and grow us so we become more and more people, better stewards of God's matchless grace, who grow daily in that desire to please And hear from him on that last day. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Let us pray. Our gracious God, our Father, we thank you that in Christ Jesus we have all sufficiency, all worth, all purpose. And the one who went to trial in our place, to the one who is received and earned the judgment of righteousness and perfection in whose righteousness we stand before you. And I pray that you would help us to apply these things to our hearts to be people set free, true servants of the cross, stewards of your grace who desire and seek to please and receive our commendation from you and you alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.